My daddy's gone on, my grandpa's gone on, my great-grandpa's gone on. But they still live. You know, the, the spray is still here. They tell me of a home where no storm clouds rise. Tell me of a home far away. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to It Still Lives, the Foxfire podcast, where we take you on a journey through Southern Appalachian history, one story at a time. I'm Cami Ahrens, your host today, curator and director of education at the Foxfire Museum, and we are kicking off our mini-series on the Civic Imagination Incubator. If you did not catch our last podcast, head over to our website, foxfire.org, to listen to the introduction on what the Civic Imagination Incubator is. This is an outgrowth of the Civic Imagination Project, which is based partially in the University of Southern California, and then they partnered for this specific project with Western Kentucky University. The project is looking at the ways that creatives in and around Appalachia are connecting with their community and telling and sharing stories and helping us to imagine better futures together. I am so excited to introduce to you this month, Clinton W. Waters, who is an author in Bowling Green, Kentucky. Clinton is the co-founder and lead writer for Sundog Comics. They also write science fiction and fantasy stories, focusing on queer themes and representation within fictional worlds. Their major creative inspirations come from The Twilight Zone, Black Mirror, and the works of Ray Bradbury. But they are also very much inspired by the culture of Appalachia and the craft specifically in Appalachia. And this is something that Clinton and I get into later in the podcast about their most recent project that they're working on in part of the Civic Imagination Incubator. And that is looking at a post-apocalyptic Kentucky and imagining a world that really goes back to many of the traditional roots of Appalachia, but without a lot of the barriers that are presented by the modern world. And so I definitely recommend that you stick throughout the podcast to listen to that. That'll be coming at the end of our conversation. But we start by just talking about some of Clinton's early influences and how they made their way to writing and telling and sharing stories through a lens of science fiction. So without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to our conversation. So my name is Clinton W. Waters. I usually go by Clint, but my very professional author name is Clinton W. Waters. Uh, I am a self-published author of science fiction, fantasy, and now horror, uh, including my newest book. It was my first foray into horror, so that's been pretty fun. And uh, I went to Western Kentucky University, got my bachelor's degree in creative writing there, and I was born and raised in Bowling Green, where WKU is. What got you inspired to start writing? Why did you decide to go into authoring science fiction and horror and all these other cool areas? Yeah, absolutely. That um, So it actually started really early. I think it was like maybe fifth or sixth grade. I wrote a short story. I couldn't even tell you what it's about now, but um, my teachers thought it was great. My parents thought it was great. They had me read it in front of my class. Uh, um, and from there, uh, just always been something I've been interested in and love to do. Um, so luckily I had from that early on forward, having very supportive um, teachers, my family, everyone saying, you know, if that's what you want to do, go for it. Um, 
so yeah, and I think uh, major influences as a kid are things like Twilight Zone. Um, me and my dad, he would park me in front of the TV, so I was closer to the TV than he was. Uh, and so, <laughs> you know, if there were any monsters or anything like that, uh, but he loved stuff like that, and I kind of just absorbed all of that by osmosis, I think. I'm sorry, I know you already said this, but you grew up in Bowling Green, correct? I did, absolutely, okay. yes. Uh, it feels like a, a big part of me and who I am. Uh, my mom owned a restaurant here in Bowling Green, and so I've been um, sort of in the public uh, in one way or another for a long time, and that's a, a big part of, we always say, you know, Bowling Green kind of raised me in that way. Are there... Um specific influences in your childhood that have you know really constructed who you are today in terms of living in an Appalachian culture and has that that type of culture influenced your writing oh absolutely um I think most of my works are in a way that I'm proud of kind of bear the mark of um living and and being from Appalachia in one way or another. Um, even my newest book is like a Lovecraft retelling. And I set it in like a rural town, like the same time I would have been in high school. Um, so that was important to me. And that most of my characters um, use words like belly instead of stomach. And uh, <laughs> things like that. So even if some of my work are, stra are you know, just absolutely set in this area or somewhere close and people speak that way and then sometimes you know it's a completely different place or world but they still have those little tells why do you choose to set them in a familiar setting what do you think that offers to other people is that is it more of an expression of like your own experiences or do you feel that there's something in in those pieces that have a special connection with your readers that I definitely think um, it's a little column A, a little column B. Um, I think that people are able to pick up whenever you are writing from your truth, from your own self or your own experiences, because um, anybody can write anything. I don't necessarily adhere to the write what you know uh, method of writing, um, but some of my pieces where it's I'm very obviously putting myself into them are uh, ones that people really appreciate and where I'm talking about things that I've experienced or um, maybe more uncomfortable topics and how those things affect that person. The character, for example, is how it would have affected me. So it sounds like those familiar experiences maybe provide like a common touchstone for people to help maybe navigate some of their own emotions. Is that Oh, yeah, kind of absolutely. Good understanding? Okay. Yes, absolutely. And that um, uh, in my book 30, for example, the main character has a sister that dies before the narrative. And uh, sorry, spoilers, if anybody was going to read that. But <laughs> um, that was something I experienced in high school was I lost brother. And it was at a time where I just started the job that I have now. And someone had picked it up because I was talking about it. And she kind of pulled me aside one day and was like, you've experienced that right and I was like yeah she was like okay that's what I picked up from it just from because she has also also experienced something similar so that there's a unique I think kind of grief that resonates with people uh, that have experiences that other people can't necessarily understand until it happens to them I'm sorry for your loss thank you so this writing writing then offers you something personal very personal as well 
Oh, absolutely. Um, that uh, the 30 book, <laughs> for example, I wrote it uh, the year that I turned 30. And it is about uh, this guy who has his 30th birthday and he lives in this world where um, people have a 50-50 chance of just disappearing at midnight of their 30th birthday. And I just poured, I had a huge existential crisis over turning 30 uh, for, for many different reasons uh, and I funneled all of those into that and so like it, the disappearing part of it being a like literal interpretation of how I was feeling at the time that you know have I done enough to justify being here for 30 years you know have I made my mark and have I made the life that I wanted to you know uh, it sounds like a beautiful way to creatively express a lot of <laughs> difficult and challenging emotions. Oh, um, yeah. Now I'm going to have to definitely pick up that volume. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite part is that the main character is very obviously me, especially to people who know me. Um, so it's really funny whenever people read it and they're like, I really enjoyed the story, but man, that main character, I just... You know, he was kind of insufferable. <laughs> and I know it's not a, like they're not saying that about me, but it's just super funny to me. <laughs> like, <laughs> So can you tell me a little bit about why you choose um, to incorporate so much science fiction into your novels? Because um, I'm finding it really interesting to this conversation that, you know, it does have so much personal narrative in it. But obviously there's a lot that's not real um, <laughs> right, in terms right. of our lived experience. So yeah. would you mind expanding on that a bit and why specifically science fiction? Yeah, absolutely. That, uh, so, you know, I'd mentioned uh, Twilight Zone before, a more modern uh, influence of mine is Black Mirror, for example, and these narratives where people imagine, so there's uh, this sort of uh, separation between hard sci-fi, which is like very literal, uh, this is how gravity would work on this planet if, you know, this and that, uh, and then there's soft sci-fi, which is just like, Mm, this thing is happening uh and that, uh, i subscribe to the soft sci-fi part of things uh and so even from the get-go my first book uh futures gleaming darkly i um every story is about a different technology and specifically how it affects queer people so each character being a different queer person and um it's really fascinating to me to see now the technologies that we have come up with so far and those sort of like unexpected circumstances or side effects of those technologies, uh, especially on people in marginalized communities. Writing about that was really important to me. And um, in general, I just love uh, like the imagination part of it. I don't read or consume a lot of media that is very realistic. It's just not, I want the escape for sure. <laughs> I'm interested in exploring this, you know, topic of um, how technology impacts marginalized communities, mm. because I, I know you've mentioned previously that there isn't a lot of sci-fi that represents the impact on queer people. And so I'm wondering if you might expand a bit on how you see that played out in both your your own lived experiences, but then also these written narratives that you construct and also maybe how your your readership has been receptive to the portrayal that you present. Uh, one story uh, kind of in particular comes to mind where it is a, um, it's about a dating app that has this sort of like VR, like AR uh, component where 
each person has a color so like a stoplight green yellow red so red is being like taken or not interested yellow you know maybe and then green being you know uh, totally available for dates and stuff like that and so this person the main character gill has their friend uh, gets them to download and try this app in real time and so it's like for at, me at the time whenever i was writing it i had just come out of the dating app world and it's so interesting that so many apps or developers or you know that kind of thing have those sort of blind spots i'm really interested in the blend of like you know the, you're mentioning these technologies that are like just a step beyond what we have Mm -hmm. But so they, they really do seem to resonate in, in real experiences as well. And so do your readers connect to that? Um, have they, have they said things to you that have supported these uh, imaginations? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, even people that are not part of the queer community, I think appreciate seeing um, different aspects and seeing or thinking about that sort of thought experiment for them. I've noticed uh, kind of a through line for my life and things are a lot different now uh, and things continue to change. But uh, especially when I first came out, I was the first queer person for like a lot of people. And so that kind of realization that I'm just a person and, you know, I'm the exact same person that I was before they found out that information. So in a way, my stories have done that for some people where uh, maybe they haven't been exposed to a queer person in a personal way. And they see that, you know, they're struggling with the same things. Like we all, we all hate dating apps, you know, <laughs> and we all have difficulties with them. Uh, or even just seeing like how the world, I think for a lot of, uh, especially uh, cisgendered or heterosexual people, they kind of have the world uh, in front of them, but don't immediately see how that world is catered to them. So whenever you show them like this thing is set up this certain way, this is how that is difficult for this other person. It all kind of starts clicking. You seem like a person who, uh, again, has a clear head and a good mm. sense of what change could do for, you know, Bowling Green, Appalachia. Um, you know, I, I've I'm waiting to like dive into the Commonwealth, but I just want to ask <laughs> while we're kind of still outside of that. Um, yeah. You know, if you could, uh, you know, if you could make one change or if you could inspire mm. one or two changes in your either immediate or extended community, are there specific things, a specific vision that you would have for your little region of Appalachia? Yes, absolutely. I think, um, you know, I'd mentioned the the fairness ordinance before. Um, it's like that is a, a very tangible, proven thing that assists people of mar marginalized communities. Uh, but really, I think just the I would love if we moved beyond uh, what we were talking about before about how like the average person and I'm not going to like make sweeping generalizations about age or race or uh, religion or anything like that but you know there's a huge swath of my community of people who you know they don't hate gay people but they still do things that negatively affect those people in their community I would love if that's the one thing I could change is just the understanding and the empathy uh, for you know we're all just people. Okay. So now if we can just like, I just want to take a little bit. I, you know, I, I read through 
the Commonwealth document that you were so generous to share with the rest of us. Oh, I'm just really fascinated by it. I think it's a really <laughs> cool idea. Um, and I was just wondering if you could just introduce it and, sure. um, you know, talk a little bit about the inspiration for it and then how it came to be. And then maybe we'll dive into some specific topics. Cammie and I are both um, part of the Civic Imagination Incubator, and uh, we had uh, a lesson, basically a seminar on uh, world building and about fandoms and creative worlds. And this absolutely speaks to me as someone who writes speculative uh, fiction, you know, that I'm coming up with these worlds and what those things mean all the time. And so the example she had given us was The Minority Report. Uh, which is a fantastic movie if you haven't watched it, dear listeners. But I did not know there was so much effort put into the building of that world and the like work that so many different hands went into um, what the ramifications of certain technologies were and things like that. And we talked about, you know, these things are just sort of created from a prompt or a brief, you know, a simple idea of what if this Thing, you know what if x and so in a, a frenzy uh after <laughs> that uh, <laughs> seminar that we had i wrote down in my notes uh after the lecture what does a kentucky without racism homophobia or class look like and the answer that i came up with is a post-apocalyptic but utopic, uh, so hang with me, uh, world wherein we have sort of shrugged off all these sort of things that are tearing us apart at the moment, like capitalism, like class, you know, things that are sort of ingrained in us uh, that a lot of people have a hard time thinking around. But the idea that the Commonwealth is, uh, I'm calling it the Commonwealth, by the way, that this place that used to be Kentucky still holds on to what it means to be in Kentucky, but beyond these things where the apocalypse has happened, uh, they call it the end. And it's like a lot of different things, uh, which is how it would happen you know it's not just one like a meteor strikes the planet and kills everyone or anything like that or uh, um fungus zombies or anything like that but <laughs> there we are at a point where uh and it's not survival horror anymore it's not people uh killing or being killed or you know fighting for things it's this point where we have formed communities that are based on mutual aid and the document itself uh, that you were talking about that you had read through is a sort of an encyclopedia uh sort of like collection of knowledge about your world that you're building then it's written from the point of view of someone who's part of the commonwealth historical society so someone who's part of this culture this uh, post-apocalyptic utopic culture, but they're looking backward and they're trying to compile information about how things are now as opposed to how things were uh, and just sort of um, maybe not a how-to guide. It's not exactly uh, these are the things that we should be doing to get to this future, but how awesome could this future be? I found it really interesting that you wrote from different perspectives, right? You mm. have different pieces written by different characters. We are um, 
paired with mentors. My mentor is someone who creates experiences is what he calls them. And him and his team of creatives have thought of like Afrofuturisms and stuff like that. And they have these galleries or these experiences where people walk in and they are in these futures. You know, they have different like art pieces or music or combinations of all these things that give the experiencer this feeling of this world. And so that's taking direct inspiration from him. I'm wanting to do that as well with the Commonwealth. And so my sort of open call to everyone right now is to sort of imagine that you are a person in the Commonwealth and you are creating art and then creating a um, gallery experience or maybe like a cultural museum exhibition that people will be able to walk through and look at this art that is created by people in or around Appalachia or have uh, an importance to Appalachia in their life, but they're making this art as if they were a character in that world. Uh, so it's a little out there, but um, I'm very, very excited to see what people make and what comes of it. I think it's right in line with what we're trying to do on the Civic Imagination mm. Incubator. I think it's just sort of another really wonderful expression of imagining a future together, which is uh, just such a cool idea. But what I was I was really struck by was how much of the, you know, the new world that you created mm -hmm. reflected so many traditions of Appalachia. And it's like you created this world that was like old but new, you know, mm -hmm. and traditional but better, right? Obviously we know you're in Appalachia, but were there mm -hmm. other reasons to why you reimagined Kentucky with so many traditional values instead of breaking from those pasts and creating you know a new culture was there a reason you chose to return I love I'm just gonna like just explode nerdily with you for a moment but the culture of Appalachia is just so beautiful to me and so many crafts so many things that we do like home crafts and, and art and things like that have survived hundreds of years. Uh, and I know some of them are maybe not practiced as commonly as others and things like that as they used to be, but they are just these beautiful representations of your grandmother or your mom or your dad sits down with you and shows you how their grandmother, grandfather, parent showed them how to do this thing. If it's whittling or making quilts or baskets or uh, any of that stuff, it's not a living fossil necessarily because it's still evolving and changing and growing, but this direct connection to the past and all those things are practical as well. Some people do make quilts to hang on the wall and they're gorgeous, but you know, you make quilts because it gets really cold in <laughs> Appalachia in the winter. Uh, and so you need giant blankets that, you know, several people can fit under and things like that. So I think those things will, in this future, uh, those things have uh, come back as uh, cornerstones. And uh, in a sort of post-capitalist world where we can focus on the things that make us happy, um, we're just going to be making art left and right all the time. Uh. <laughs> well, and that's the amazing thing about craft, right? Is it's this beautiful mm. balance between like a tangible utilitarian object, but also an, an, an artistic and creative expression. But the other, the other piece, you know, that I think also comes out in, in your um, Commonwealth piece about community is that 
to make these crafts, to know these crafts, like that's inherently a shared tradition, right? So you're mm -hmm. still mm -hmm. using the physical pieces to link together the, the people, which I think is really cool. Another huge part of like why I'm so obsessed with this project uh, is that I've already sort of like I've been telling people about it and some people have read the document and some people haven't, but to see people's imagination run wild. So, so much of this is like, growing ideas and sort of like fleshing out um, these seeds that are being planted by other people. Uh, and so the community kitchen being the center of, you know, where people go to school, that's where people eat, that's where, uh, you know, hospitals like, because they would be worried about energy management and things like that. Uh, so one kind of catch-all structure um, would have to um, kind of tick as many boxes as possible. Okay, so at the end, I was really struck by this imagery that you kind of left us with. And through through it, you're talking about like nature taking back over, which is really cool. Um, and then you have it like turn into magic. So it's like nature takes over and then it slowly turns into magic. And you talk about the lights hovering in the sky. And I'm just like, this is traditional Appalachian folklore. <laughs> Absolutely. The Hopkinsville oh. Goblins, uh, you know, Mothman's been sighted in Kentucky before this. Super cool. So did you grow up with folklore like that? Or is that stuff you've encountered as an adult? I was convinced I was going to be a cryptozoologist at one point. Uh, I was super into just all of the different uh, creatures and like 100% believe that Nessie existed. Uh, you know, like Tampi up in Lake Champlain, like 100% she's there. I know it. Um, and so learning about those things that have happened closer to home, that was a surprise to me uh, in doing research for the Commonwealth. Um, like the mention, I didn't realize, I thought Mothman was purely a West Virginia thing, uh, but apparently he's traveled. Uh, he has seen the sites and been to a couple of different states. Um, but this idea in the Commonwealth, I am just so in love with um, the idea that right now, uh, in the age we live in, <clears throat> we are trying to, or it feels sometimes we're trying to shrink the world. Uh, we're trying to figure everything out and we have lights constantly and you know, light pollution is a huge uh, issue. Um, but we're in a metaphorical way. We're also keeping lights on all the time. Uh, we want to banish any kind of mystery and we want to, um, you know, figure everything out that we possibly can. And there's good things and bad things about that. But um, this idea that, um once the <clears throat> the lights are gone and once like our society as it exists now um i had this idea that you know once upon a time the world was more magical than it is now and we've kind of strangled the magic out of the world and so uh this world the commonwealth where people are coming together and they respect nature and they um in a lot of ways, they have to respect nature because they're still wild animals. And, um, you know, nature has sort of, like you, you mentioned, has sort of taken back over. And so it's about living with the world as opposed to forcing the world to fit into the things that people want. 
you know, that's, again, that's the cool thing about creative writing. And it sounds like you do this a lot in your work that you create accessible avenues for people to understand complex issues in, in a um, more digestible format. Um, so I just, mm. I really thought that was really cool that you did that. Thank you. That's good. Then I've done my job. Okay. So my last question for you, I asked this of most folks now, but do you personally identify as Appalachian? And if so, what does that identity mean to you? 100%. Being Appalachian means that uh, community. We um, have a sort of unique, I think, like there's such a thing as Southern hospitality, but like Appalachian hospitality is not that. Uh, it is it is a kind of Southern hospitality, maybe, but that kind of like you are one of God's creatures and you are beautiful and like you are my family simply because you're here. Um, so I want to fill your plate and I want to, uh, you know, hear your problems and make you a cup of coffee and all that stuff. Uh, so that's definitely where I my touchstone for it is. Definitely seen that and all the wonderful people I've met here. And thank you so much for sharing that with me. Yes. Um, is there anything else you'd like to add or you want people to know? How, how can they read your work, I guess, would be a great starting point. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. If you uh, search me up, just Clinton W. Waters, um, you'll find I've got my website that has more information about my books. Uh, they are available through Amazon and Barnes & Noble. And uh, if you want to be part of the Commonwealth, uh, if other people that are listening to this are interested in learning more, um, they can email me at cwwwriting at gmail.com. And um, it's a, I envision it as a collaborative, evolving thing. Absolutely. So, you know, if other people have ideas they want to contribute, uh, maybe they have an idea but don't know how to write it, I'm absolutely open to um creating this world with as many people as possible. Thank you so much for joining in and listening and learning about Clinton's work in Appalachia. I think it's remarkable to have a storyteller that's so rooted in place and certainly that is a major characteristic of Appalachian literature but I love the way that they take the lens of science fiction to explore some of the more difficult themes and to kind of blend contemporary issues with uh, imaginations of a different future. If you want to learn more about Clinton's work head over to our blog www.foxfire.org. We will have some pictures and some links to learn more about Clinton and maybe even a bonus excerpt or two. Don't forget to join us next time for yet another conversation with a Civic Imagination Incubator Fellow. We're so excited to continue this mini series highlighting the work of these creatives in and around Appalachia. And we definitely wanna hear from you. So if you are a creative working in Appalachia and you have a project that you wanna share, reach out to us on social media and we will be reposting some of these artists and creatives over the next few months in conjunction with this podcast. As always, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to check out our website. And if you can share, like, support, donate, all of those things help the continuation of this project and supporting our mission to preserve and promote Southern Appalachian history and culture. Thanks so much, and we'll talk to you next time. Take care. If you don't like that, you can throw it away. I like it. <laughs>